Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, Assistant Head, and today I'm talking with Father Jose Medina, uh, who is the chaplain at Brookwood School and um, who teaches full-time in history, theology, and math and science as needed and desired. Um, he's here today, I think, to talk mostly about the issue of attention or the topic of attention as um, we see it in different ways. What got you interested in the topic of attention? What got me interested into the topic of attention? What got me interested into the topic of attention was a very, a curiosity that I had since I was little. And it is that piece in the gospel in which Jesus is passing through a crowd and then turns around and says, who touched me? Mm -hmm. And the disciples say, what? Right. In everybody the middle of a crowd, you, right? everybody has hands on you. So why was that touch different from all of the other? So there was something within that action, it's a human action, mm -hmm. touching, that meant more than the others. Right. And when I think about speaking, I, sp I think about it in the same terms. Mm -hmm. Why is one word more powerful than another? And I've always been intrigued by this because, so like you read the, the Bible and it says that the word was created by God saying something, a word. Right. And, so, and things happen. Right. Performative and I, utterance. And I do notice that when I say things, Sometimes nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the experience of every teacher, of every adult around children. Definitely every teacher. <laughs> so why, why there are certain moments in which I say something, the same words, and they resonate differently? Right, right. So you're thinking about this, um, this gospel um, as, a, as a person of teaching age, yeah. Uh, or uh, so you're, so this is um, so this is something that became important to you as you're thinking about it in connection with teaching, but also in connection with um, with that particular gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, connection to teaching and preaching. So like why? Right. So like I, I I'm always um, we say the same words all the time. I love you. You say it when you're 15, when you're 50, but somehow. There are certain moments in which the words that are said moved people. Right, right. And of course, I mean, I think preaching is a lot more monologic mm -hmm. than, um, than teaching, the way that I understand you teach and the way that I try to teach um, with different kinds of seminars and different ways of getting the students to kind of create their own attention, right? That they have a certain amount of buy-in because they need to present this little piece or they have a certain amount of, um, of interest and desire to explore um, because, I mean, because they're responsible for it with regard to everybody else. So that's kind of a way of commanding attention um, and it works to greater or lesser degrees. Um, I don't know to what degree that's what you're talking about, though. I think in, in, in some ways it is. I, I get the sense that we can only learn what we are willing to give attention to. Sure. I mean, St. Augustine says it differently. You, can, you will never learn anything that you don't love. Right. And the love is required in advance. So it's not that you, are going, you love it already and therefore they, there is a, a degree of a, of a jump there. You have to be right. willing to love it first without knowing it. Right. And, and it feels it's, it's very much into the emotional, um, almost the intuitive level. Mm -hmm. Right. So you grab a book and you say, I'm interested, mm -hmm. without knowing what the book is about. Right. And almost that level is required yeah. for you to actually encounter whatever the book is Right. There's about. a kind of receptivity that, um, that you kind of cultivate beforehand. Um, one of my favorite books is Brideshead Revisited. Mm -hmm. And my connection to that book came when I was too young to appreciate it. And, um, but it came because somebody said, you know, this is a good book. You're going to like this book. There are things to like about this book. And so I entered into it thinking, okay, well, I'm going to like this book. So what am I going to like about it? And how does it work? And what are, what are the pleasures of this book? You know, And I think that that openness... Um, in that case, more extreme, uh, because I was told, you know, it can also be a habit of mind, 
right? And I think the best students have it. You can see it. You can see their openness. You can see their little receptors mm -hmm. um, as they, um, I mean, not just laugh at my jokes, right? But as they, um, as they're, they're clearly listening in a deep way to what's happening because they're curious, because they want to know, right? In, in a sense, it's a habit of mind of, because you are always expecting something to be revealed. Yeah. Something is going to happen that will speak to you. Right. And I think, I mean, that is, is something that has to happen before actually you get to know the thing. Mm -hmm. That's why, yeah, I agree with you. It's a habit of mine. And if you have it, you will always find everything inviting, an adventure. Something will be new always. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, then you will always be bored. Right. Right. Yeah. Right, because if you don't let anything in, right, if you have kind of a, a wall, a, a lack of um, desire, as you're talking about today at the homily, we're recording this on Ash Wednesday, um, when Father Medina gave a homily um, about how Lent is about desire, um, and how, um, in particular, fasting is about desire, awakening desire. Um, and there's, um, and so there is that that need for a kind of openness um, to, to what's happening and that habit of mind, right? That something interesting is going to happen here and I want to be able to receive it or appreciate it or understand it um, in one way or another. And it's interesting too because I think about like, the very best students and, um, and their openness to what's happening and how that works. Um, I'm interested in that... Um, that, that sort of leap of faith that you're talking about too, that believing it kind of before and then it makes sense um, or it's possible to be understood with the intellect because it's been accepted as a real possibility by more than the intellect, by the intuition or um, something else that's operating in a more spiritual way. Yeah, the, the important decisions are always made before the knowing. So like, well, today in my religion class, we were talking about Matthew's calling. Matthew leaves everything, you know, leaves riches, leaves house, leaves everything uh, before knowing what Jesus was going to tell him. So like it's an invitation, come and follow me. Uh, but that happens, the explanations will happen much after. In my eighth grade class today, we were uh, looking at the passage of the calling of Matthew. And it's very interesting because Matthew wrote the gospel. That moment of the calling is in all of the gospels, in the three gospels. But the details are very scarce. Mm -hmm. Jesus arrives, says, Matthew, come, let's go. And Matthew leaves everything and follows him. So at that moment, he makes the most important decision of his life without information. Right. So there is no guarantee of any kind. It's almost a game of people gazing at each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true in every human endeavor. Like people fall in love that way. And then they begin right. to Right. You don't on the first You know date, before you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very... So like, because... Learning is the same thing. Learning and loving are the same thing. You cannot discover unless you have decided for mm -hmm. in advance. And that is, I, th I, th I think I agree with you. I think it's a habit of mine. It's a habit of life that you look at everything that has happened to you, not with suspicion, right. but also almost like waiting for something beautiful to be revealed almost right. everything is an opportunity so that's hard in a couple of ways one way is like actually looking right like actually looking and then the other is um the more temperamental right the um the the um expecting or and i guess it has to be expecting uh, that the embrace of whatever is happening is going to lead to something good Mm. And um, and that and it's something more than um, than what one can know beforehand. So it's it's scary and that it leads to the unknown. Um, but it's um, certainly a truer way to live. And I think that it is very connected to to the religious dimension of of the human being, because I I am willing to step in. Uh, so like an adventure of which I don't know anything, the unknown, 
um, almost like a dark room, mm -hmm. only if I know that nothing bad is going to happen to me. Right. So the idea of a loving father who created me and created the world mm -hmm. and that kind of is thinking of me and thinking about me, I really need that experience in order to actually jump in into everything with a certain degree of positivity. Hmm. I think faith, uh, in that sense, faith meaning the recognition that there is a loving father who cares for right. me, is, is, it facilitates the act of attention. Well, it certainly cultivates um, daring, right? Like you're uh, like knowing that no matter what happens, you're acting out of a good motivation and you'll, and, and whatever happens will be um, something that builds you or, um, or something that's, um, that's positive or something that's intended or something, you know, they'll, I mean, there's a whole, uh, whole way of thinking about it. I think too, as you're talking about stepping into the dark room, I was thinking a little bit about the, um, the hero cycle, you know, that we, we talk about in English class and that comes from, um, you know, Jesse Weston and all mm -hmm. of those old thinkers and, and popularized by Joseph Campbell. And, um, and you see it in Star Wars and Harry Potter, the idea of the reluctant hero um, have, is sort of being, um, being swept up in his or her sort of own adventure and then how that plays out, um, you know, with, you know, a test and a period of success and a difficulty and, you know, like all of those kinds of things. But I, um, I mean, it seems too like that, that idea of in ways um, the adventure finding the person I mean, that's Sarah Funny, the hero, right, is, um, is kind of part of it as well, I think. Um, and, it, and the hero finds the adventure because the hero is, um, is in ways on some level open to it, even if there's a lot of like intellectual interference or a lot of anxiety interfering, uh, that on some level deep down the hero is open to it. I mean, is the, the being drawn out that every time that you read a book, you are drawn out of yourself. Yeah. And, a, and it's a very mysterious dynamic because you are drawn out of yourself and you find yourself. You right. discover things about yourself in the adventure. Right. So, so it's you discover in, who you are in a sense. Yeah. So it's the, um, the sort of etymological meaning of education, right? To draw out. In many ways, yeah. Um, so you have that idea that in some ways, it's, does that mean that it's already there? And it has to be drawn out? Or is it just the, the, the ability to do it that's drawn out and then the content is to be discovered? I think, I think that we, we carry within the implicit and only when we are drawn out we become explicitly who we want to be. Hmm. And I, I think in many ways, even in the act of loving someone or discovering what love is, mm -hmm. yeah, you have to love someone. It is in the loving, in the being in relationship. Right. That you begin to actually somehow load those words that you say, not only with emotion, mm. but that's the first attempt right. of trying to put some, some weight, some uh, gravitas to the things that we say, like the emotion or the rhetoric. But it's is the experience, and it is, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I think, in many ways, um, being in relationship with people brings what is in potentiality in us to actuality. Without relationship, we never become a, truly ourselves, in a sense. Yeah, well, it's like that um, that um, Carl Jasper's sort of idea of the um, of the dialogue, right? I mean, in the, many ways, yeah. And so you have the idea of that it's the kind of back and forth that elicits the um, the greater thing, right? Um, and so, I mean, it can be like in the classroom, right? The, that, that we learn the material by talking to each other about it and like turning it over different ways. Um, but it can also be something that's deeper than that. Yeah. Um, if you can imagine anything deeper than the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think it is. <laughs> I think the classroom is a beautiful place of encounter is, it, it is a pity that it's so short and that we lack the words. I mean, because students because we are they are young and we and I as an adult because I still am trying to figure out how to communicate certain things that are not even clear to me yes yes right um, 
So it's, it's always this attempting, no? Well, those are the best classes, right? Because if you know the answer, then as the teacher, if you know the answer and you're asking people to give you back what you know, like that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, that's, that's I, dog training in ways. I always I beg my students when they write something for me, please don't be, let it not be, do your best because I don't want to suffer. Right. Just by just <laughs> regurgitating my vomit to you, to me, back to me as a payback. That's a disgusting sorts. image. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yes. The um, that yeah, you want them to um, to take and to synthesize and to build, right? And um, and again, like in in seminar or in other places, like the real learning is happening. Uh, when there's that play, and it is communal, yeah. right? And the way you're saying that it's it's about being in relationship with other people, um, that that leads to you know the um, success or deepening, um, or um, or sort of however it manifests. Um, so you've given me a couple of articles. Uh, one of them is about um, the risk of education, which is a small book by Luigi Giussani. And um, I'm interested in that. And the other one is, I think, a reading from one of your classes yeah. um, by Simone Bay. So um, I want to start with the risk of education. Um, in the article you say, because it's an article by you, about the book by Giussani, um, you say in relation to Giussani, or sort of in, in interpreting the book, that... Um, there is the um, innate and, um, and universal longing for truth, beauty, justice, and good, and ultimately God. And I have a question. Um, to add to the difficulty, Jusani thought, this is you, to add to the difficulty, Jusani thought that this existential disposition increases exponentially with the influence of the modern mentality so much that it has atrophied the person's capacity to reason. I was interested in that. So it's because of original sin, the heart is hardened. To add to the difficulty, Jusani thought that this existential disposition increases exponentially with the influence of the modern mentality so much that it has atrophied the person's capacity to reason. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, I think that it, it would be easier to unpack in the sense that original sin is our innate capacity to be distracted. Ah. So in the sense of we don't expect, we don't desire anything from the things that are around us. And uh, I mean, when we think, I mean, even you, when you look through the account of original sin is Adam and Eve who think that they can continue to be with God and like God, but without being in relationship with Him. Sure. So losing that right. presence of Father, mm -hmm. suspicion enters into the world. And then you begin to look at everything that happens like, hmm. So it's interesting that the first... How is that distraction? I mean, the, I can see it's misalignment. Is that, is that sort of the same? or In the sense that you begin to... You have the first time, for the first time, the experience of being suspicious. That maybe things are not going to be always good. Okay. To the point that one brother kills another. Because he's... He's jealous. He's looking right. with an evil eye mm -hmm. to what has happened. He's not because God, the Father, didn't, let's say, approve as much of his gifts. He didn't mm -hmm. see it as an opportunity to learn something. He right. saw it as, hmm, there is something here. Mm -hmm. So it's a suspicion that then you begin to actually not want to pay attention because you are afraid of okay. things. So because of fear? Yeah, fear. Um, yeah, okay. Suspicion, fear, uh, or fear. Yeah, fear of not being as good. I guess in the case of the sacrifices, or fear of is fear that things will not be good for me. Okay, okay. Is the simplicity of because that's the original suspicion, what he has, or better, what I have is not good. Right. That is better. Right. You now you begin to compare. There is no joy anymore. There is no rejoicing in the gifts of the other, there's only comparison. Right, you okay. Start, um, I think that in time, the more we lose that sense of being children of God means we become more suspicious. Hmm. And uh, we think that people are out to hurt us and we have to defend ourselves. And as right. the passing of time, um, looking is not... It's, it's very daunting. Yeah. Because I don't know if I'm going to be hurt. 
So why walk in a dark room? Why right. go in an adventure? So I'd mm -hmm. rather, but I want to, and this is where the distraction comes in. I so, want to yeah. go into an adventure. Okay. I yeah. want my life to be beautiful. So I'll make a fake one. So either make a fake one or don't look at it. Mm -hmm. Don't think anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Don't reason anymore. I mean, I think of something like social media, right? Like I don't want to have an adventure, so I, I have like images yeah. of adventures. Um, or I, um, I mean, I think about, you know, or yeah, I'm fearful in some way. So I, um, I, I either construct some alternative or I find ways to be comfortable um, denying my desire for the adventure, right? I, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. And so thinking about how that works, um, the, we have the idea then that that fear then atrophies the person's capacity to reason. Yeah. Um, and then from there, um, there's the idea of um, tradition and the relationship of um, tradition to the teacher and, and then to the student. So here's the next um, little chunk. Tradition for Jasani is that hypothesis of meaning into which a child is born and in which the child participates by imitating the parents. Later on, as an adolescent, he must be encouraged to make tradition his own by being taught to verify its validity in his personal life. And because Christianity is an event that must be lived through, not merely read about or discussed, the tradition must be presented as something living and in the educator himself. So the educator has to be a kind of exemplar of the tradition. In many ways, yes. I'm, I'm thinking again, I'm thinking back at the example that you gave me about Bright Hedge Revisited, your example. You read a book because somebody told you to. You took into account that consideration because you felt that that person loved you. Yeah. Had an affection for you, wanted the best of you, and you took a risk. Right based on the fact that you could trust this person. Right. And it also was, I mean, it was my, um, my friend who was moving away. So it was sort of like my, you know, I'm losing my friend and here's this book. And, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I think that the, our, our students, the moment in which they perceive um, that, they, that the teacher has an affection for them, yeah. they are facilitated. They will try harder. Mm -hmm. They will take more risks, more, right. because at the end, trying to study is a risk. Right. You can fail. Yeah. No, and I think there are judged. all those studies that show that um, that the kind of emotional temperature in the room really has a lot to do with learning outcomes. Correct. Uh, and that the um, that the student who um, who feels comfortable, who feels um, seen, who um, feels like part of things, like that student will be a lot more successful. Um, and that it's, um, I mean, that I guess the sweet spot is trying to construct a classroom that is challenging intellectually while the students also feel comfortable. And like this is a safe place to try out an idea that they're not sure of or, um, I mean, just kind of think out loud a little bit and to try to, to work things out. So when, when you were talking about the exemplar of tradition, we are, in a sense, the father. We are the father whose presence allows you to walk into dark rooms mm -hmm. if you if the student has a perception that you are valued you are taking somebody's thinking of you um and i pro i propose to you an adventure mm -hmm. and now if if my students come to me and say like well you have to tell me what the adventure no that's not how the rules in life right. work you have to take a chance mm -hmm. you have to take a risk right so to what extent on that, it almost is as if the first encounter uh, that we have with our students almost marks their attitude for the rest of the year in many ways. Sure. I'm always very yeah. mindful of this when I, every year when the day, first day of school and the night before that I never sleep right. because of the awareness of this. Right. I know I've, I've been a teacher for 20 years. But I know that that first day of school uh, is, in a sense, the most uh, significant because mm -hmm. people will say, yes, I'm going into the adventure or mm -hmm. no. Right, <laughs> right. So 
you the word that you choose what word do you choose to be the first word that you say so that you're facilitated to jump into this adventure that we're right. going to have for a whole year yeah there's that popular education book that harry wong the the first days of school uh -huh. which is just all about that it's i mean it's it's the that idea that um like those days are so important and um and again the student who feels and it is it's all about whether the student feels comfortable the student feels invited along um, the student feels that this is challenging but doable. The student, I mean, like all of those things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So in many ways, when we are tradition, we are we are um, we are um, trying to imitate God the Father. Ultimately, no pressure. No, we simply <laughs> and and we do that by trying to imitate our father and our mother. And teachers are, in a sense, so like these eternal imitators. Yeah. Like, and being a teacher is probably more difficult. No, I don't. I don't want to say this. Being a teacher has both the mix of being father and mother, mm -hmm. in the sense of the one who is pushing you try things, right, try things, right. and at the same time, as you were saying before, so like, but but you're safe. You're it's safe. Okay. Yeah, I've got <laughs> try, you. But yeah. You're not gonna get hurt. We hope. Right. Right. <laughs> And there's a certain amount of risk. There has to be a certain amount of risk. There is always but a, really, a deal um, of risk. But yeah, yeah. So is that what it means to, to live the tradition, to take that role of um, of, of God the Father, um, or of you know the um, the father and mother of of the of the student in some ways? Is yeah, that the tradition? We live the faith. We are people of faith. Means that we are certain that God takes care of us. So that. So I can walk in my class with the full awareness that the first word that is going to come out of my mouth is going to have a significant impact without freaking out. And you don't and I mean you you kind of plan like the direction for that word cuz you're not stupid, but maybe you haven't scripted it, right? And there's a certain amount of magic that happens Correct. when you walk in and you see them and there's a certain energy and um, and the way that the students respond to things. So there's um and it's often, and you also, if you're um, a little bit underprepared, uh, you listen better, right? And so there's um, there's that aspect as well. Um, but if you think about it, it's like if you were to be an imitator of Jesus, as he's accounted or he's told in the Gospels, it's all a game of gazes. It's mm -hmm. like he walks in a place and says, you, come and follow me. I mean, it's the same thing we do in the classroom. We walk one day and say, like, you, do this with me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and therefore my, my absolute obsession with attention. How do, you, how do I grow in attention? How do I educate other people to that attention? Mm -hmm. Because everything happens that And way. so your growing in attention is you're paying proper attention to the students and the students' needs and you're listening to what's happening um, and you're paying attention to the subject matter. Um, is that how you grow in attention? I, th I think is and Simone Fale is interested in this because she talks about attention from the point of view of almost as, as, a, as if, she uses two words, attention as desire and attention as prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is the um, almost uh, innate expectation or a, an expectation that something is going to happen, something is going to be revealed. Right, right. And that changed the way in which I taught a few years when, when this became more um, obvious to me or more, mm -hmm. when I, I realized that my walking into the classroom was not about me doing something, mm -hmm. but me looking forward to something happening. Right. And this dimension of I as the teacher, I really want to learn something I didn't know mm -hmm. when I woke up this morning. Yeah is what has made my teaching enjoyable for myself. Right. And hopefully for my students one way or the other. But uh, that is not, um, it's like in a sense when an, uh, an actor, when he acts a play, something happens to him also. It's not just the exposing a skill. You right. have the capacity to communicate mm -hmm. or you have a lot of knowledge. Right. But in a sense, the witness of something happening to you also. Right. As you are talking about a book, like probably happens to you as it happens to me, but maybe you've already read 20 times. Right. <laughs> yeah, here's me talking about the end of The Great Gatsby again, right? Or listening to what the students have to say, but it's, um, but it's not, right, it's not, um, it's not that, right? It's not, it's not the kind of dry conveying of material. 
Um, yeah. So I'm kind of, I, I'm back over here on the risk of education, uh, thinking about like this idea of tradition as um, kind of a symbol almost. And, yeah. then, and then I'm happy to walk over here to Simone Weil. But, um, but that, that idea of, um, like I'm having a hard time not thinking of tradition as a body of knowledge, but thinking of tradition as, as kind of, um, as an emblem, uh, as like a person or um, of a way of being as opposed to um, something that's um, that's more content heavy in mm-hmm. uh, in that way. So I think that's I think that's really interesting. And I'm having a hard time like talking about anything else um, because I'm, I'm interested in that as a, as a kind of idea. But um, I think it's a very good observation or, or an observation that resonates with me because because the act of teaching is symbolic is, is an imitation of the sacrament ultimately it's communicated. It's not that knowledge itself is is happening there. Right. Somehow you grab on and you keep it with you. Yeah. It's not so much. I think that tradition as content, the things that we've understood after two thousand years of living and telling the story of Jesus and mm-hmm. dealing with him, there are hundreds and thousands of people who have reflected and tried to put it in words. Right. And if we're doing it right, we can kind of reflect some aspect of it, right? Um, or I would say all of the aspects. We okay. reflect all of the aspects. We are able to make explicit with our words some of them. I mean, I think that it's very easy to always think of this when I think of God, Dallas, and the Trinity. Three persons, one God, one substance. I mean, yeah. So like there are words. Do we know what God is? We, I mean, we see it as Father. We see Him as a Son. We we need Jesus in order to be sons in the Son to discover who we really are, mm-hmm. and the grace of the Spirit. And then Athanasius, a thousand years ago, came up with these two words that more or less holds it together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, but you can have the experience at every moment, though. Right. Okay. The words never do justice to the experience of of being a song. Okay. Um, I think a little bit of the Sherwood Anderson story, The Strength of God, which I was teaching in AP Lang today. Well, tell me about um, that. The, so the story is about a Presbyterian minister um, whose name is Curtis Hartman. And um, he's sort of timid and reserved, and he has this nervous wife. And um, he is he's sort of doing his job, but he always wishes he could be a little bit more passionate, but he can't. Um, and so he ends up a- across the way, and he sees it through the stained glass. So that through the um, the stained glass window that's in his office, he can see. Like he um, he can open the window and see. But ultimately, he breaks a little chip of the window so that he can see out. And across the way, he sees his neighbor, who is this beautiful woman, um, who is like sitting on her bed, smoking a cigarette, reading a book. It's 1919, so that's kind of shocking. And, um, and so he suddenly has all this energy, right? And he goes on and does this thing. Um, and, um, and he's better as a preacher and more attentive to his wife and a better person. But then it gets, it gets mixed up because he, um, Lupe actually said that he doesn't seem to have much experience with, um, with sin and temptation, or maybe not, I, mean, I think we all have experience with sin, but he doesn't have much experience with this kind of temptation. And so he doesn't know how to deal with it. And it sort of, it tears him up. And um, at the at the end of the story, so he's um, he's chipped off the um, the the part of the window, and the window is a picture of Jesus and um, a boy, and Jesus is healing the boy, um, and so he's looking out through the hole in the window to peep at his neighbor because he's you know fallen into the sin, and um, at the end of the story, he um, kind of puts it all together in a way that enables him to see. So she, the woman that he's been watching, um, prays on her bed in a way that sort of puts her in the position of the boy in the picture. Uh-huh. And he responds to that by smashing the window. And I mean, he runs downstairs and he tells his friend um, what he's done. And he's like, it's, it all makes sense now, you know. And what's happened, actually, as he walks by, like he knocks the table and the Bible falls on the floor. And my students are all like, oh, the Bible fell on the floor, um, you know. And it's um, and ultimately, the story is about how all of those kinds of representations um, 
have to give way to his living it. And yes. so he goes, and what he, I mean, he, what he wants for this woman ultimately is, um, is to, to be her preacher. Like, I mean, he's, he, he's not, his desire isn't ultimately sinful. He ultimately wants to be, um, somebody who helps her spiritually and who's able to teach her and heal her. Um, and he realizes that in this moment and it all, it all comes together and all the representations are not as important as his lived experience. Mm. Um, and then ultimately like what he can internalize, like what he's internalized from all of his years and years of learning that he can now express in this more spontaneous way. Mm. So I don't know. It seems, that seems relevant to me in, um, the way that you're talking about sort of the content, um, and the, all the intellectual work that we can do. And um, how ultimately it has to be, it has to be lived and it has to be lived in a way um, that I think is understandable. And I think um, in the, um, in the, your article about the string, about the, the risk of education, the, um, that I mean, Jasani talks about the, the, ne the necessity of the attractiveness, right? Of, um, so he must be, I think this is the teacher, he must be that as attractive and as much as the educator is an authority, he will encourage the adolescent to verify the validity of the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this, um, this sort of, again, thinking about sort of the emotional temperature in the classroom that people feel safe and people can talk about things, uh, but that, that the classroom and the teacher with the classroom, that that's an attractive proposition. I don't know. I think that... It reminds me of two things, the things that you're talking about. The first is that I, I, I remember taking the Gospels, like reading the, through the Gospels with more interest in my life when I had an, an experience of Christian living. And then reading the Gospels is like, oh my God, like this is the same thing that it was happening to me. Hmm. And... It goes almost on the opposite direction. Like mm. I was interested about Matthew and Peter and James and John because the things that have happened to me and I'm trying to understand mm -hmm. happen to them too. So that's why the gospel becomes a hypothesis. Right. But I already had the experience in the same way that when you fall in love with someone, you fall in love and you say, well, let's try. And then you spend a significant amount of time trying to make sense of what of this that happened right. to you on that moment. Sure. I sure. think that some so like we cannot I, I, I have a hard time imagining an interest in um, in in theology if not because I have I have that experience of Christianity mm -hmm. that continues to be alive in me and I want to know more about what is already happening to me what is happening to me in my life mm -hmm. the fact intrigued by the fact that what it means to be transformed by the grace of God no and uh, um, I participate in the in the sacramental life a lot I say mass and I still in awe to the fact that I a man can say certain words and uh, so like the body and, and blood of, of God appears in front of me. Right. No? And that is this presence that transforms my life. Like there is so much mystery in front of, of, of me every day. Mm -hmm. you know, that there is possibility of healing through confession. And that is real healing mm -hmm. that can be felt, that can, that can move a person, my person and other people. Yeah. This is really helpful in thinking about um, attention as a kind of staying with and deepening um, and further understanding of reality um, as opposed to this kind of superficial widening out, this dissatisfaction. It's almost like a, an act of contemplation in many ways. Yeah. Because uh, our lives, are, I mean, our lives are very simple. Ultimately, they are very simple. We can spice them up with a trip here or there mm -hmm. or an activity, but they are very simple lives. We're up in the morning, we go to work, stay mostly with the same amount of people. Mm -hmm. It's like things every so often happen. Um, but they have so much depth. And mm -hmm. we notice when someone goes missing, we notice how significant certain, uh, right. the presence of people are. Right. We notice when people move away or, or when we change mm -hmm. jobs or... So, in, in that sense, we, 
we almost lack contemplation. Right. We, we almost lack awareness of what is in front of us. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it is connected to attention. We give very little attention to the things that are happening. Yeah. I think that students um, and people have a pretty good capacity for attention. I think about the poetry writing class and how I ask the students to, you know, meditate on the objects on their desk or like, I mean, just, or, or, um, you know, a picture or a, um, I don't know, any, any number of things that are, they're small. Um, they're able to do it. Like they're able to, um, to look at, um, at something and to, um, continue looking at it until they arrive at some inference or um, some idea of meaning, right? Um, and so, I mean, it seems like that capacity is there. And in that class too, which I've been teaching for you know a long, long time, um, all different kinds of students can do it. It's not that you know that the super good students are the only ones who can do it. It's I mean that people do it in their own way, and uh, and that the students do seem to have like when they realize it's what they want to do and they're given a kind of structure to do it, then they really can pay attention and deepen their experience, and it, again until they arrive at some kind of meaning or um, some further conclusion or. I mean, I guess the next thing, you don't have too much of that because that's how you lose the attention, right? Yeah. But, um, but that can also be um, a way. I don't well, know. In a sense, it's interesting because you, you probably know a lot more than I do about attention because you teach poetry. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at a very simple object and commune with it, contemplate it to the extent that it, it begins to speak to you. Yeah. And you have the gift to actually give words about that experience that you can communicate to other people so that I can also commune with that experience. Right. I mean, in, in a sense, it's, it's discovering the poetry of life. Right. You know? And the poetry of life is not so much that you do a particular beautiful activity, but it's in the, in the hidden life of every day. Right. There is poetry, you know? Right. That is an act of, and that's pure attention. And that's the first thing that we do is we separate story, like the narrative poem from the lyric poem, mm-hmm. and we decide we're going to focus on the lyric poem. And so, okay, well, what is the lyric poem? How does it work? And it's and it is it's very much you know meditation, reflection, um, exploration. I mean, sometimes there's some portraiture. Um, I mean, so thinking about those those ways in. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I mean, it's it's pretty um, it's pretty fun to um, to hang out with um, with students as they figure out um, how to use sensory details and then you know their own inferences and associations in order to, to deepen what they say. Well, if you think as a religion teacher, I, I am always in awe to the fact that we Christians simply say that the God who actually created all of the things that we know of, including ourselves, out of love for me and my person, uh, became one like me and did things that I would have a really hard time doing myself, such yeah. as giving my life. Right. Uh, for me. So, like, it's, it's the, that sentence in Psalm 8, you know, who am I to you, God, that you so much care for me? Right. I think that the, the discovery even of, of personal dignity, you know, uh, discovering personally the dignity that we all have, arises precisely from the all and wonder in front of such a divine act. Yeah. And that's what ultimately all of religiosity, all of Christianity is about. So like it's being in awe to the fact that I must be so important to you that you are willing to go through all of the things that you went through because you love me. How do you respond to that? Right. How do you, I mean, of course, so that you try to figure out ways, to imagine ways that you could even, maybe not even respond in the sense of like transactional, you did this, I do that, because it would be impossible. But at least, how do I acknowledge mm-hmm. the fact that you so much love me? How do I allow myself to be loved, in a sense? Mm-hmm. In many ways, this is the problem of, of every single human being, our students, and allowing oneself to be loved by God. Mm-hmm. But all of these things are profoundly human experiences. I adore when I find that poet or that writer that is able to help me facilitate entering into this right. mysterious dimension, the poetry of life. Sure. 
there are some people who, who, with their heads, their logic, they are able to more or less put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, I mean, is that what Simone Weil does? Putting the pieces together? Simone, I think Simone Weil, Simone Weil is interesting because she's, she's Jewish and she thought about converting, but she never did. But I think it was it was because she felt she was more useful on the fringes, to her, to right? The, to her people because of it, yeah. That was the reason that she gives. She knows Christianity very well. And in many ways, that's what Simone Weil is. is for her, attention is prayer. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, attention is this, this, at least acknowledging that we are loved. You cannot make that up. I cannot convince myself that I am loved. Mm -hmm. It's not even sufficient that people tell me. It's right. not an emotion in itself. So, yeah. call it whatever you want to call it, but you know to be loved. That certainty makes you able and willing to take risks in life that would be unimaginable. Right. Otherwise. Right. That, how do we, at least, how do we as teachers facilitate mm -hmm this adventure of paying attention so that you may discover yeah. that you actually get loved. Yeah. I think Simone Weil does a good job at that, at, at um, helping us understand that attention is not an effort of our will, but really is an effort of desire. Mm -hmm. It's an, an effort of wanting, of waiting. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you are as an English teacher trying, like when writer's block. Once in a while, I write something, and you put yourself in front of this, all of your technique and skill about how to do a proper sentence and uh, grammar and all of that. Nothing can help you in that really risky moment of, and now the first word, like right. almost the only thing that the only way in which I can begin writing is almost by one of my students uh, on an assignment, uh, an eighth grader came to me. Um, I gave them an essay on uh, on attention. And she's like, I have writer's block. I cannot write yeah. anything. So just take a piece of paper and just write something. Just yes. write whatever it comes. Exactly. And then, then you'll jump back. Right. I mean, that's why I have the poetry students keep journals, right? Yeah. So that they, um, they sort of train themselves. It's, and in a way, an artist keeps a sketchbook, right? Yeah. So draw something, like write something. And um, pay attention to this for a certain period of time and, and see um, and just write what comes to mind. And then from that, you'll be able to pull something that you can use. So it's um, sort of beginning that process, right? Yeah. So yeah. thinking about the, um, the, the page shouldn't be blank because you've written a bunch of garbage on it that you can go back and pull, right? And say, okay, well, this isn't half bad, or this makes me think of something else, or this does, you know. And so you've got something that you can, that you can work with because you've got some raw material. Yeah, sometimes, I'm, I don't do this very often, but when I, when I give real feedback to my students, I highlight the words that I would keep uh -huh. of uh, an essay. This, I would keep these ones that I highlighted. I would, like, throw everything else. <laughs> uh, but in that sense, because when we write, there is, we're trying to make sense of things, but then there are some beautiful things that come yeah. about, and it's like, hmm, that's really interesting. Right. You should actually just keep working somehow, contemplating that, like... Yeah. Like it's great when you can threads. teach. Yeah, when you can teach them to find it too. I mean, that's an exercise that we do where I have the students write, and then they think we're done. But I say, okay, go through and choose a line of what you've written and copy it out on the next page. Okay, there's your real topic. Yeah. yeah or there's your exactly. there's the first line of the next thing, and that'll be the better thing. Uh, so, but yeah, thinking about like how to how to trick the mind into. Um, taking the taking the leap, make, you know, sort of um, allowing for the the it's risk. Like what you're saying, like, in, in, I find it very interesting and very helpful because the adventure of learning is precisely doing that. You walk into a dark room, and what you find is a clue or a, sure. a thread. Yeah. And then you have to be have the patience to then pull the thread, mm -hmm. and then it takes you somewhere else. And sometimes we we are very impatient, and and also is is and, and this dynamic of desire, you want to know, but it's not revealing to you. You have to wait, mm -hmm. and it is tiring. Very time, it's very very tiring to do, to to decide and to wait, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, yeah. to wait for things to be revealed. 
it required that's to me what sacrifice means hmm. waiting for things to be revealed in relationship and that's what we ultimately propose to the kids in their personal relationships when mm -hmm. you fall in love with someone mm -hmm. so like yes you are you are fully passionate you're even writing in your journal that mm -hmm. i will die for you let's do great things but then you have to wait no? mm -hmm. and uh and and, the, and it is in the waiting that you keep pulling the threads and discovering what really is hmm. that is happening to you. Hmm. But how do we educate? That's, as an educator, I'm always thinking about this. How do I help you to... It's not stamina, because stamina works with the will. Right. The stamina of desire. Mm -hmm. is keep wanting and waiting and... Yeah. And keep pulling the thread and things reveal to you. It seems like it's individual, right? You have to see like how much how much waiting that student is ready for. Yeah. Um, and it won't be the same for everybody. Like some maybe can't do very much at all. Um, but for um, but for other students there's that, that sort of in, um, sort of inherent or intrinsic desire is stronger hmm. and they're able to 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 go further with it or to um, to wait, you know, in the way that you describe. Hmm. Yeah. That is the experience of how many times do you have to write an essay? How many drafts do you need? Right. And sometimes you have, you need five, and after you are done with the fifth, then you say, well, this needs to go to the, sort of like, just leave it in the drawer, because <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Like, I have a lot of things that I've written and never finished, mm -hmm. because it's not happening. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to think about um, how that works. I know Elizabeth Bishop with her famous poem, One Art, says it came to her like writing a letter. And yeah. you can go visit the 18 drafts of it. Yeah, we all have this dream like of writing the, on the road like Karak and just like oh, stuff. Right. Leaf it turns out he didn't even do it. Like he, he didn't even do it. Like it wasn't, it's all first thought, best thought, right? And it turns out that he also revised. Uh, so, yeah, first thought is the first thought. That yeah. is the thought that came after the second. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's funny. Anything else that you want to say about this topic? I don't. I know that I can think of, but I like this conversation. Yeah. Thanks very much for um, for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot, and uh, I have a lot to think about. Um, maybe I can wait and you know let it all absorb. Right. We'll see if I can do it. Thank you for listening to the Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, here with Father Jose Medina. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Opinions expressed are the participants' own. 